Welcome to Sunday School for Heathens. The show where we learn about Christianity and how weird it sounds to everyone else. I'm Shannon. And I'm Brian. I am not a priest and I do not have a degree in theology. I'm just the kind of guy who you seat next to the deacon at your wedding. On that note, congrats Frankie and Will. (laughs) I love that shout out and I love that they knew that you would be safe to put next to the deacon. Yeah, uh, he was very nice. So is his wife. (laughs) That's great. Also, while I'm on the subject, this wedding was in uh, was in Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah. And I knew Omaha was very Catholic. I think I was unprepared for how Catholic Omaha is as a place. Wait, did you get astounded by a Catholic thing? Yeah, so I was in the hotel gym okay. on the treadmill, and there was a Catholic TV channel playing. And it was a children's program. And at one point on this children's program, they explained that Committing a mortal sin causes soul death. And it's like, this is a little heavy for kids. <laughs> also heavy for the hotel gym. <laughs> I mean, I was kind of into it. It was very it was very funny. Well, that's your niche. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, so Omaha. Omaha. Also a cool speakeasy that I went to. I mean, like, <laughs> as someone who is from Denver, to drive from Chicago where we are now to home... The best place to stop if you don't want to do it in one day is Omaha. Sure. And Omaha is a reasonably cool place for being in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Definitely a good time. Yeah. Awesome. (laughs) Well, what are we talking about this week, Brian? So this week we are talking about relics. Ooh, like pieces of dead saints? Yes. I've seen some of those. Oh, yeah? I mean, I've been in a lot of churches, just none of them for services. So. That's fair. When you travel around Europe... One of the main things you can do is go to churches and see things. And some of them have pieces of dead saints in them. Well, probably most, if not all of the churches you were in had a relic in them. Sure. Because are relics sometimes more than pieces of dead things? They certainly can be. Awesome. Uh, Relics are either the remains of a saint Mm -hmm. directly or objects closely related with those saints. Okay. So like... Writings or like clothing or like things they touched. Yeah, it not necessarily writings, though maybe. But like journals, think. like physical objects? Yeah. So there's three different levels of relics. Okay. First degree relics are something that's a physically a part of the body of the saint. Okay. It can be a whole skeleton, but it's usually more like a single bone or a lock of hair. Who was it, the saint that we talked about in the patronage pop quiz whose tongue didn't decompose? Oh, shoot. I forget. It was it was a dude. It was, yeah, it was one of the dudes. Sure. But yeah, but stuff like that <laughs> is a... Yes, that would be a first degree relic. Okay. A second degree relic is something that belonged to the saint in their lifetime. All right. So like personal possessions. Yeah. So often this will be like clothing or it could be a rosary that they owned. That makes sense. Yeah. So something very closely associated with them. Third degree relics are something that has touched a first or second degree relic. What? Yes. Like you rub a piece of fabric on a bone, and then now that piece of fabric is a relic. And then they sell them because of course they do? Yes. Technically, you're allowed to purchase a relic. No one is allowed to profit off of relics. So the church could sell a relic and then use the money to like help fund part of the church. But no one's like making, no one's buying mansions off of the relic business, theoretically. Yeah, you're not supposed to, at different periods throughout history, 
people definitely made a lot of money off of relics. Okay. The way that some people try to get around it is the thing that a relic is contained in is called a reliquary. They can be all different sizes. They can be like a little tabletop thing that's got a guess, little window. I guess it depends on the size of the relic. Yeah. Or it doesn't even have to be. You can have like a full-size statue of a saint looking holy and awesome and then just a tiny little window that has a little piece of hair in it. That's crazy. I remember one of the relics that I've seen was somebody's thumb. And I like can't remember. I couldn't tell you what European city it was or what saint. But it was somebody's thumb and they had it in like the little shiny box mm-hmm. and it was dark and you like popped a coin in it and then the lights came on so you could see it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> if anyone knows what on earth, which European church it might have been, in my mind it's in Budapest, but it could have been in a lot of places. Yeah, I don't know about every relic. There are so many. <laughs> I believe it. Are there a ton of third degree relics because it's so easy to sort of make third degree relics? Yeah, a lot of the time they'll be laminated into a prayer card for a particular saint. Okay, that's interesting. And I googled it. You can get a third degree relic of St. Francis in a prayer card for like two bucks. Wow. So they're not high ticket items. No, third degree relics are a thing that you can pretty easily obtain. And are they just there because people like to feel like they're part of a thing? Uh, We'll get back to that in a minute, but we're going to go into the biblical basis before we get into more of the history. Cool. I'm into it. So as most things in the Bible and an ever-present source of frustration to you, this is not explicitly said anywhere. Of course not. (laughs) Why would it ever be? (laughs) Uh, There are some passages that people point to to support the use of relics. The first is in uh, 2 Kings. This is in the Old Testament. Okay. Uh, This book talks about the history of the Israelites. And in this book, there's a prophet, Elijah, who has just died. And there's a passage that says, uh, Now the Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once, while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders... So they threw the man's body into Elijah's tomb. When the body touched Elijah's bones, the man came to life and stood on his feet. Okay. So that's a, like, feels like a relic story. Yeah, so it's like, contact with bones of this holy person did a thing. There you go. So another one we have is from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, This story comes from a larger section about miracles. Jesus is on his way to go raise a girl from the dead. Like he does. (laughs) Yeah, you know. He passes a woman on the road who's been bleeding for 12 years. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. All right, Bible. You do you. Continue. <laughs> okay. The, you, just so you know, this was totally written by a man. He doesn't want to know she's been bleeding for 12 years, but we'll leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> we'll just put a, put a pin in that one. Yeah. Good job, Matthew. So this woman, she comes up behind Jesus And she touches the edge of his cloak. And she says, if I only touch this cloak, I will be healed. Jesus notices this and says, take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. And she is healed. Okay, from her mystery bleeding. Yeah, from those lady problems. From mysterious lady bleeding. (laughs) Uh, One more, the Acts of the Apostles. This is talking about Paul's travels as a missionary. Hi, Paul. Yeah. Hey, Paul. How you doing? It says, uh, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. 
So those are the passages that people point to, like, hey, this is a thing. Cool. And I like that there's one that's about, like, the bones, one that's about, like, a real person in real life, and one is about, like, clothing. You sort of get, like, a first-degree relic and a second-degree relic and also just, like, living, breathing Jesus. Yeah, there are others, and I pulled those on purpose. It's almost like I planned. You're so smart. (laughs) Okay, so if there's only limited and non-explicit mention of how relics work in the Bible, how did relics become a thing? People just started doing it. The earliest mention we have of people venerating relics is Polycarp, who was one that we mentioned in the Saints episode. Yeah, I was going to say that name sounds familiar. Yeah, he was uh, a bishop who was martyred in about 165 CE, and there was a work written about him shortly after his death called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. Okay. In it, the writer says, We took up his bones, which are more valuable than precious stones and finer than refined gold, and laid them in a suitable place, where the Lord will permit us to gather ourselves as we are able, in gladness and joy, to celebrate the birthday of his martyrdom. So there you go. Yeah, people were just venerating saints. Because, so it sort of ties in with, like, why did people celebrate saints in the first place? They liked having things to celebrate, and it made them feel closer to their religion because they were a little more specialized. Pretty much, yeah. It's a physical reminder of the people that you've heard the stories about. Mm -hmm. So it's... Kind of a natural thing. There's other cultures that do similar things. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of arose. Interesting. It feels like fandom. Like people are like fans of these particular saints. And so they want to like have more about them. They want to see more art. They want to be closer to the real thing. And so they sort of like create these little pockets of fans around particular saints to, and then those relics are sort of like the way that they are able to better connect with these saints who might have been dead for like a gazillion years. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Uh, they, there's totally different uh, groups of people that are have particular devotions to different saints. Yeah. Um, whether it's regionally or by topic. That's why they're all patrons of things, so that people can connect to them better. Exactly. Uh, I imagine, and I'm going to just say this now... Whatever saint you picked for the patronage pop quiz this week probably has a really either awesome or super weird relic attached to them, and I can't wait to find out what it is. Uh, you know me too well. Just get ready. It's oh my god, I'm so wild. excited! <laughs> all right, we've deviated. What's next? <laughs> so the the church fathers all seemed pretty much on board with venerating relics. Saint Jerome, a fourth century theologian, said, "We do not." Worship we do not adore for fear that we should bow down to the creature rather than the creator, but we venerate the relics of the martyrs in order to better admire him whose martyrs they are. So we're venerating these because it's indirectly adoring God. Great. But people are okay with venerating relics for the same reason they're okay with venerating saints. Yeah, as long as you're, they make it very clear that you're supposed to venerate, not worship. Which is a weird semantic difference. Yes. Cool. Augustine's view on the the topic said that, uh, he said, Children cherish the coat or ring of a dead father, but you should show even more respect to the body because it is much more intimately and closely united to us than any garment. So, so he's all about first degree relics. Yeah, he was saying that both make sense to venerate, but there's definitely a difference. Cool. Um... The Eastern Church seemed to jump on board with relics much more than the Western Church, especially at the beginning. 
Interesting. Uh, St. Gregory of Nisa, a 4th century Eastern bishop, said that he had once acquired a portion of ashes from a group of martyrs whose bodies had been burned and distributed widely. He said that he buried his parents with some of these ash so that in the hour of the resurrection, they may be awakened together with these highly privileged comrades. That's so cute. He's trying to take care of his parents in the afterlife. He's doing it with ashes, which is sort of macabre, but I'm into it. It's cute, but also like a little weird, but okay. Yeah, I think that's fair. (laughs) So that was St. Gregory. Pope Gregory the first. this is a Western guy, was not a fan of this sort of thing. Okay. He explicitly said that you should not move bodies or split them up into pieces. Ah, so if you want to venerate... The body of a saint, you must venerate the whole body and in the place where it is currently buried. You cannot go digging people up and dismembering them and distributing them wildly. Yeah. A lot at this time, they would build altars over the places where people were buried. Okay. So we're not disinterring people willy-nilly. Right. Did they do that, though, in some places? It definitely happens a lot more later, but in these first few centuries, it all happened more in the Eastern Church than in the, the Western Church. We're still... Just building churches on top of graveyards, basically. Yeah. And in the Western church, uh, normal people couldn't even touch relics when they were available. Only priests could, and even then, only after fasting and prayer. And that thought lasted all the way up through the Middle Ages. Wow. From a antiquities preservation standpoint, that's probably for the best. Probably. But this also only applied to actual bodies. Um... They were totally cool with splitting up and distributing second-degree relics. Like, they would file off little pieces of the chains that St. Paul wore in his imprisonment. What? And St. Cyril said three separate times in his writing that the wood of the cross found by St. Helen, Mm -hmm. who we mentioned one time before. Lots of callbacks here. I like it. He said that the wood was distributed all over the world. Okay. He wanted everyone to know the wood is all over the world. Everywhere you can find a piece of that cross. Yeah. I actually thought when I was a kid that there was a piece of the cross in every altar. Interesting. I I mean, I could see why you would think that. I forget where I heard that, but somebody must have told me that or I misheard them. But it's just a relic. Any, Mm -hmm. Any kind of relic. It doesn't have to be the wood of the cross. So does every altar have a relic? Up until 1969, we're just getting now to when we start putting relics in, at the Second Council of Nicaea uh, in 787 is where they decide that relics are used to consecrate churches. Oh, so that's how you, like, make a place officially church. Yeah. So this is when they would start putting relics in, and it was required until 1969, and now it's optional. Okay. And this is Catholic churches only. (laughs) Great. I actually do not know about Orthodox churches if they are required to have a relic in them. Well, our friendly neighborhood Orthodox friend, Nancy, please let us know. I should have looked that one up. I'm sorry I didn't ahead of time. It's all right. It's a learning (laughs) experience for both of us. So there was a long time where you needed a lot of relics in order to spread the faith of Catholicism. Yeah. Because if you're opening new churches in... Places where there have never been churches before, are you like BYO relics? So there's actually a a letter that we have from uh, Pope Hermistus in 
519 that said that boxes containing pieces of silk or other cloth, they were called uh, brandia, were lowered into the tombs of the apostles and kept in contact with the remains for a period of time. And when these were pulled up, they were considered relics. And they could be used for churches when there was a shortage of relics. Okay. So they just started manufacturing third-degree relics in order to make sure that we didn't have a supply problem? Right. I'm thinking this is where we get the idea of third-degree relics, when we want to start putting them in every single church, and it's hard to obtain enough. Yeah, because I'm thinking, like, when the Americas were colonized, you you needed a relic for every church. They were not creating new relics in North America when it was first being colonized, but you needed something to consecrate churches with because the Spanish and whoever were spreading their religion. And are they just, like, bringing boxes of stuff with them? I mean, it's a very tiny piece of a thing. And also probably it's harder to make more relics when we stop martyring people willy-nilly. Yeah, probably. Uh... Like, how many contemporary relics are there i have no idea how but to I even mean, begin even, to answer that question but are there <laughs> are new relics be are mo- new second degree relics like being uncovered i guess if there's new people who are getting canonized they're like going through their houses and declaring all of their stuff relics and distributing it that's probably true we are probably not getting new first-degree relics. I will tell you that. I would hope that we've <laughs> stopped dismembering people we like. It's weird, and we should calm down. If we have to, like, crack open a casket and we discover they've mysteriously not decomposed, then, like, maybe we'll give you a pass. But we need some time. Yeah. Secondary relics, like, someone's going to get canonized and we're going to, like, go to their apartment and be like, they touched all these things. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. People now have more possessions than people did in antiquity. So yeah. it might be easier to get second degree relics. Well, yeah, because I think about someone like Paul, who did, a, other than being in prison and stuff, spent a lot of time wandering. Yeah. You know, how do you, you don't own much if you're wandering around preaching. You've got your clothes and your shoes and your book and... Whatever. And, you know, your tent-making tools or whatever. Yeah, and I don't know if we've <laughs> held on to and since, like, put in a reliquary whatever Paul was using to make tents with. As far as I know, we have not. <laughs> but, like, hypothetically, if you were to be canonized, Brian, like, this table we're at. Yeah, I don't know if there's... <laughs> I don't know. You don't know what the, the, the rules on relics that are just furniture are? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how important it has to be to you before people, like, want it as a relic. I mean, if you were a saint, I definitely want your cows in winter calendar as a relic. (laughs) My calendar that I'm going to throw away at the end of this year. (laughs) Yeah, no. You have to keep it in case you become a saint. (laughs) All right, we are so off topic. I know. (laughs) One thing that I missed was, so at the Second Council of Nicaea, not the same council that we get the Nicene Creed from. Because that was the... First or the third? That was the first council. Okay. That one was in 325. This one, 787. All right. Um, this council, they officially affirmed the veneration of relics, images, and icons. Great. But there's evidence that people were already doing this kind of thing before, already consecrating churches before we get to this council. In northern Africa, there's an altar with a hole in it that looks like it used to contain relics. 
Uh, the description lists the names of about half a dozen saints, and it says that it was set up in 359. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that would be really old and probably very cool relics. Yeah. Um, relics only got more popular going into the Middle Ages. Uh, people would travel on pilgrimages to visit particularly famous ones. And we also see reliquaries getting more and more fancy mm-hmm. and gilded. And like I said, all different sizes, very ornamental. As these got more popular, the church had to crack down on how relics were venerated. At the Council of Trent between 1545 and 1563, the bishops made a declaration saying, yes, God has given many benefits to people through relics, but we have always and continue to condemn anyone who goes and visits a relic solely to obtain aid. Ah, you must go to worship and not just to be healed. Right. (laughs) They also said, in the invocation of saints, the veneration of relics, and the sacred use of images, every superstition shall be removed, and every filthy lucre abolished. And... Uh, the visitation of relics must not be by any means perverted into revelings and drunkenness. Oh, so we can't have drunken parties with the dead bodies. Right. Bummer. So knock it off, Middle Ages people. Man, the Middle Ages <laughs> needs to calm down. <laughs> it sounds like whatever was happening was crazy, though. Oh, yeah. They were having a lot of fun with relics. <laughs> yeah. Relics party. Thomas Aquinas, writing a little before this in the 13th century, went even further and said... That uh, God just did miracles in places where relics happened to be as a way to honor the saints. And it has nothing to do with the relics themselves. So stop worshipping the relics themselves. So just worship the saints. So just worship God. Just worship God. God is just doing this where these things happen to be. Worship God. These are signs of God, not signs of anything else. Worship God. Yeah. Aquinas wants you to have even less fun than the bishops at the Council of Trent. I mean, isn't the catchphrase, Aquinas wants you to have less fun? Just hard stop. (laughs) That might be true. (laughs) That seems like my take on Thomas Aquinas. (laughs) Kind of a killjoy. That, yeah, he definitely is. He he has a lot of feelings about a lot of things. That's fine. He's allowed. Beyond these theological issues, there were a lot of problems with fakes around this era. Ooh, I can imagine. Yeah, people would just claim that any bones found anywhere near a church were from a martyr. I mean, there were a lot of martyrs. There were, but not everyone is a martyr. Some people just died. I mean, that's true. (laughs) Uh, Some people started selling relics and getting rich off of them, even when they knew the relics were not authentic. And like I said before, technically the purchasing of relics is not against canon law, but the profit off of them is. And then the selling the reliquaries and throwing in the relics for free. Yeah. That fun loophole. Sneaky, sneaky, sneaky. Like I said before, uh, Protestants not really into relics. Pretty much for the same reasons they don't venerate saints in general. Mm -hmm. Basically, you should only worship God and you don't really need saints for anything. Just talk to Jesus. I mean, that's their jam. Adolf von Harknack was a German Lutheran theologian in the early 20th century. He studied the history of relics and he had a lot of feelings about them. Okay. Most offensive, he writes, was the worship of relics. It flourished to its greatest extent as early as the 4th century, and no church doctor of repute restricted it. All of them, rather, even the Cappadocians, countenanced it. The numerous miracles which were wrought by bones and relics seemed to confirm their worship. The church, therefore, would not give up the practice. Although a violent attack was made upon it by a few cultured heathens, 
cultured heathens. <laughs> I would like to think of myself as a cultured heathen. Um, I, I think you're a cultured heathen. Thanks, Brian. I mean, are you worshipping relics? No. Well, then great. Amazing. Adolf I did it right. <laughs> this 20th century Lutheran <laughs> thinks I'm right. Or something. Yeah. Speaking of Lutherans, there's a, there's a really good quote from Martin Luther, too. Oh, great. I can't wait. What lies there are about relics. One claims to have a feather from the wing of the angel Gabriel, and the Bishop of Mainz has a flame from Moses' burning bush. And how does it happen that 18 apostles are buried in Germany when Christ only had 12? Amazing. <laughs> sassy, sassy Luther. <laughs> so he was not a fan. Clearly. Opinions on relics now are kind of mixed. Since 1969, the Catholic Church no longer requires a relic in a new church. You can still do it if you want, but it's important that it's authentic if you're going to put it there. But at the same time, when it comes to older relics of dubious authenticity, the Catholic Church says, No dishonor is done to God by the continuance of an arrow which has been handed down in good faith for many centuries. On the other hand, the practical difficulty of pronouncing a final verdict on the authenticity of these and similar relics must be a patent to all. Further, devotions of ancient date deeply rooted in the heart of the peasantry cannot be swept away without some measure of scandal and popular disturbance. Hence, there is justification for the practice of the Holy See in allowing the cult of certain doubtful ancient relics to continue. So basically, we're not going to take the time to providence all of them. So some of them are probably fakes and we just got to live with that. Yeah, especially the older ones. They're just like, fine. <laughs> Whatever you said. And they also quietly allow some relics to drop out of sight. Ooh. Because <laughs> we, don't, we don't love these fake relics. Yeah. If they were to just like get put in storage somewhere and never come out of storage, we wouldn't be mad about it. Right. Fair. <laughs> That seems reasonable and a good way of handling it instead of causing like a big fracas about the whole situation. Yeah, boy, because if there's anything the Catholic Church does not need, it's another scandal. Yeah. One other fun fact about relics is there's this weird ongoing controversy about relics on eBay. What? <laughs> One, because it's sacrilegious because of the, the profit part. And two, because you can't sell human remains on eBay. <laughs> I mean, you can sell second-degree relics. You can, but people are selling first-degree relics on eBay. No. Whatever you do, do not buy relics on eBay. They're also expensive. Well, yeah. It's eBay. And weird. And also just getting into a bidding war over a relic sounds hilarious to me. That sounds like a thing you would do. I would not. It sounds like a thing you would watch other people do. That's fair. <laughs> we could get... So much more into the topic of relics because there's a whole weird world of it. But I'm just going to close out with a couple particularly weird famous relics. I'm ready. I'm so excited. The first one I have to mention, it's not as weird as some of the others, but it's famous. The Shroud of Turin. Okay, I was figured that it would come up at some point. Yeah, it's said to be Jesus's burial cloth, has an image of a man on it. People claim that man is Jesus. It has been dated through chemical testing to the medieval period. So it's unlikely that it's authentic. Yeah. But some people insist it is. It's at the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist, but it is not currently on display because it is so fragile. Fair. Isn't the face, like, sort of spooky face? 
It's a little spooky. He's got great mustache and beard, though. Fair. Rocking the center part. It, it's like all of the pictures you see of Jesus in... Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly what you think Jesus looks like if you've looked at a lot of white Jesus paintings. Great. <laughs> all right, what about some other ones? Because I've heard about that one and I want some new stuff. The mummified head of St. Catherine of Siena. Ooh, okay, I'm in. <laughs> it's on display at the Basilica of San Domenico. It's exactly as creepy as you would imagine. Oh my god. And just for you, Shannon. Oh my god, I'm not ready, but I'm ready. I'm not I ready. have a picture. Oh my god, it's so weird. Everybody else, oh I will god. post this picture. Please, please post that picture. She's got her habit on. She doesn't have eyes. She's in a reliquary. It's very pretty. The reliquary is very pretty, but like, uh, that was a lot. I only have one more, but it is a doozy. Okay. This last one is the holy foreskin. What? Yeah, that is Jesus's foreskin. No way that this is real. No way. No way. The earliest record we have of it is in 800 when Charlemagne gave it to Pope Leo III. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But it seemed to multiply throughout the Middle Ages. 18 different towns claim to have it. Oh my god. Why? (laughs) Most of these were lost or destroyed during the Reformation or the French Revolution. Reasonable. Finally, one ended up in Calcutta, Italy in 1527, where it was venerated from that point on and paraded through the streets each year on the Feast of the Circumcision. Oh my god. That was recently, right? January 1st, yeah. Okay. I remember we were talking about it, but I don't remember when that was we had that conversation. Unfortunately, it was stolen in 1983. Who steals holy foreskin? I don't know. And are they trying did. to sell it on eBay? Maybe. Maybe we'll find it on eBay. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> so that is what I have for you on relics. Well, I'm sure there's more relics to come in the pop quiz, but should we take a break first? We shall. And we're back. And it is time for the Patronage Pop Quiz, where I tell Shannon about a saint and she has to guess what they are the patron of. And I know it's going to be weird this week and I can't wait. Well, I feel like I'm letting you down a little bit because it is St. Catherine of Siena. Okay. (laughs) I'm a little let down. But also, I've now seen her mummified head, so I'm looking forward to knowing more about her. Yeah, and don't worry, it's still weird. Great. (laughs) That's all I ask. So, St. Catherine was born in 1347 in Tuscany, Italy. During a plague outbreak, her father was a wool dyer, and she was the youngest of 24 children. (laughs) Though only half survived past infancy, and she was actually a twin, but her twin died. At the age of seven, she had a vision of Jesus along with Peter, Paul, and John. Jesus blessed her, and she consecrated herself to him. Her parents tried arranging marriages for her when she turned 12, but she refused. She cut her hair and fasted to mar her appearance. She became a Dominican at the age of 15 and spent her time working with the poor and the sick. Wait, ladies can be Dominicans? Dominican nun, yeah. Okay, cool. Or, well, she was technically a religious sister, not a nun. She wasn't in a convent. All right. She was in a third order, which meant that she still lived at home. Okay. Catherine once explained that she regarded her father as a representation of Jesus and her mother as Our Lady, 
and her brothers as the apostles, which helped her to serve them with humility. Is that allowed? That seems kind of sacrilegious. Whatever works. Sure. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) When she was 21, she had a vision in which she was in a mystical marriage with Christ, and the infant Christ presented her with a wedding ring. Some claim that this was a jeweled ring. Others claim that the ring was Jesus's foreskin. Oh my god! We're back on foreskin? (laughs) Either way, Catherine said the ring was invisible. Okay. I'm glad. (laughs) Other visions that she had drove her to be more involved in public life. She worked for a reform in the church and urged people to give themselves completely to God. She also worked to keep city-states loyal to the Pope, and she helped start a crusade to the Holy Land. Once she visited a condemned political prisoner and was credited with saving his soul, which she saw being taken up to heaven at the moment of his death. She was a counselor and correspondent with Pope Gregory XI and Pope Urban VI. She was also a stigmatist, meaning that the marks of the crucifixion appeared on her body. That's freaky. But these, like her ring, were only visible to her. Okay, less freaky. There's other stigmatists that... Oh, I'm sure. People saw others. We'll get to them someday, I'm sure. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. She died in 1380 of a sudden, mysterious, and painful illness, uh, maybe brought on by all the fasting, but that's not known for sure. I mean, I believe it. (laughs) She was first buried in a Dominican church in Rome, then moved to a funerary monument later that year, and then her relics were reinterred in 1430, and again at a high altar of the same church in 1466. She was proclaimed a doctor of the church in 1970, and that is Catherine of Siena. So, Shannon, what is Catherine of Siena the patron of? Okay, I have some ideas. Okay. Uh, The easy one is that she's probably the patron saint of Siena, Italy. But that feels like a cheap shot. I also... Have started cutting the cities out of the list because they go on forever. Yes, that, and I can't pronounce any of them. Okay, <laughs> true. But that feels like a lo- that feels cheap because it's in her name. But I have two other ideas. Okay. Of course. Is she the patron saint of political prisoners? I feel like I'm on a game show every time we do this. <laughs> she is not. Damn it. Uh, is she the patron saint of, like, families or something to do with, like, honoring your parents? No. Is she the patron saint of really weird dreams? <laughs> she, she is the patron saint of people ridiculed for their piety. Great. I'll count that as of really weird dreams. <laughs> she is the patron against bodily ills, against fire, against illness, against miscarriages, against sexual temptation, against sickness, against temptations in general, for fire prevention, for firefighters, nurses, nursing services, people ridiculed for their piety, sick people, and Theta Phi Alpha sorority? Okay, sure. I don't know what that sorority is, but I figured I'd throw that in for I'm you. I'm into it. I, I approve. <laughs> yeah, and that is, that is Catherine of Siena. Great. <laughs> well, thank you for listening this week. If you are enjoying the show, the best thing you can do to help us is to go on to your podcatcher of choice and like or subscribe whatever that is on your app. If you are an Apple podcast user 
or an iTunes user, if you could go on there, toss a review in, toss um, a rating in, all of those things are going to make it easier for more people to find the show. Or just tell your friends. If you have friends from your religious group or your other religious friends that you think might find us amusing, tell your friends. We would appreciate it. Yeah, there's got to be more people out there who think I'm at least as funny as I think I am. Yeah, and I don't think I'm funny at all, but I think someone thinks I'm funny, and that's worth something to me. In the meantime, our theme song is by Adam Griffin. Editing and logo are both by David Griffin, who has been to a lot of European churches with me, and I'm very grateful for it because he kind of knows what's going on. Uh, Oh, note on Adam. Uh, I went to his show since last time we recorded. It was awesome. Adam's great. A grifter. Check him out. Yeah. We'll post the link to his website in the show notes as we do every week. And with that, amen. Amen. Go in peace to like and share the pod. Now, but I, fr- I didn't write down the oh, the closing. David will cut this together. Let me pull up the closing. Great. Put this in as a blooper at the end. Especially that weird sound, whatever I just made. <laughs> yeah, please keep that weird sound. <laughs> please don't. I also made a weird squeaky sound somewhere in the middle of this, David, and I really hope you can find it.